Father, it is our joy this morning to confess your sovereign love, care, and grace for us. You will hold us fast until that great day of salvation when we stand before our Savior, Jesus Christ. We praise you for the gospel this morning. We praise you for your sovereign work in our lives. We praise you that we can take refuge in the truth of your loving care for us. As we come now to your word, we ask that you'd soften our hearts. Help us to receive the truth and conform us to the image of your Son, we ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's my pleasure to be back with you again this summer. We were out here just for one very quick week last year had the privilege of teaching the young people in the church and preaching just that one Sunday. And uh, it was shortly after we arrived back home in California last summer that John gave me a call and he explained that he would be absent this summer for a number of weeks and asked, would you like to come out and fill the pulpit? And it was our privilege and our pleasure to accept the invitation. Uh, At the time, I was serving as a lay elder at Grace Community Church, and so I was thinking through the summer and thought, well, I, I could pull away for a number of weeks, and it would be fine, and, and so that was our plan, and what we didn't know is that just in a few months' time, uh, Bethany Bible Church would come onto our radar, and very quickly, as I interacted with the elders there, as they were searching for a new teaching pastor, it became evident to us that this was going to happen, and, and by around about November or December of last year, everything had kind of fallen into place such that in January of this year, I began as the teaching pastor there at Bethany. And of course, that changed things uh, as it relates to this summer, and I, early on in the process of speaking with the search committee, just flagged the fact of our commitment to Makakilo Bible Church and explained, you know, in the first year of my pastorate, if this were to happen, I would be gone for the whole summer. Um, How do you guys feel about that? And the elders were just very, very understanding and showing great love and care for us as a family. And they said, you know, you you need to honor the commitment. And number two, you need to do this for your family. This will be a blessing for you. And so uh, I'm very grateful to them Uh, for their willingness and their readiness and their encouragement to us uh, to be here with you, and it really is our our joy. We've been looking forward to this as a family for some time, and uh, we're looking forward particularly to being with you for more than just one Sunday, but hopefully, Lord willing, the next six Sundays, and uh, we look forward to getting to know you more. As I was thinking about six Sundays, My desire was to offer something of a complete sermon series, if that were possible, and so my mind kind of leant towards the minor prophets, smaller books of the Bible, and I thought, is there a minor prophet that I could cover in six weeks in its entirety? And I think Habakkuk is the answer. Uh, I think we can get through this all in six weeks. We'll see. Our text today... Uh, is Habakkuk chapter 1 and verses 1 through 11. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. Habakkuk chapter 1, 1 through 11. I'll read the text beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk. The Word of God reads, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you look idly at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, at their rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men, whose own might is their God. Throughout the course of history, there are certain questions that have persisted, questions that are asked by all peoples at all times, through all generations, questions such as those that pertain to the existence of God, questions about the meaning of life, questions that relate to what happens after we die, questions about suffering. In all generations, all people everywhere have wrestled with the problem of pain, suffering, injustice. Why does God permit evil? Why does God allow the evil, the suffering, the pain that we see to be so intense? How is it that we can reconcile the suffering that we see with an understanding of God's love and His sovereign power? These are the kind of questions that sit at the very heart of the book of Habakkuk. He's a prophet. He sits within the minor prophets, but he's unique in that, Habakkuk is not so much in the business of foretelling, much less is he in the business of forthtelling. Unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk is in the business of questioning. Habakkuk is unique in that he comes to God with complaints. He asks questions of God that relate to the injustice that surrounds him. He seeks an answer for God, from God, as to why he is allowing the evil that was so prevalent during his time to prevail. Now, the book is short and it portrays a learning curve, three chapters. I would encourage you over the course of the next six weeks to make time in your schedule to read through these three chapters, perhaps even on a weekly basis. Become familiar with this book, and what you'll notice is that there is a learning curve throughout Habakkuk. He begins by complaining, questioning God, 
And he ends by praising the Lord, by declaring that he will rejoice even in the midst of great suffering. And so we understand that across these three chapters, Habakkuk, the man, journeys. He charts a course of theological progression in his own heart, and by virtue of the fact that this book is in our Bibles, by virtue of the fact that God had raised up Habakkuk so as to be carried along by the Holy Spirit and speak these truths, we understand that God's will is that we also would follow the same learning curve. Wherever you're at theologically, wherever you are experientially. I understand that many may come here today bearing certain burdens, experiencing certain expressions of suffering or injustice. Wherever you're at, the Lord's desire, His will for us is that we would all progress along the same journey that we see Habakkuk move from one of asking questions to a resolute determination to rejoice in the Lord. Notice his circumstances haven't changed. By the close of the book, the circumstances around him have not changed, but his theology has. Habakkuk has learnt, amongst other things, the necessity, the precious nature of faith in the life of the believer. Habakkuk has learnt the priority of God's glory in our lives, and he's learnt the particular skill of rejoicing in the Lord even when times are not good. My prayer is that over the next six weeks, the Lord would do a similar work in our own hearts. My prayer is that God would work in our lives through His Word, that we would all learn that skill of rejoicing in the Lord, of trusting in Him, of prioritizing His glory, irrespective of our circumstances. Now, the structure of the book is fairly simple, two complaints and one prayer. Three chapters, two complaints, one prayer, and this morning we look at just the first complaint. Verses 1 through 11, Habakkuk opens by questioning God, and you can summarize the opening complaint by virtue of the question, will God be idle? That's the title of the sermon this morning. If we collapse down Habakkuk's opening complaint, it is, in essence, a question as to whether God will act. Will God be idle in the face of all this injustice? And of course, God responds and says He is not idle. He's not merely standing back and watching this. He's not oblivious to it, but God is intimately involved in everything that Habakkuk sees. By no means does God take pleasure in evil. By no means is God the author of evil. But God is intimately involved using it within His sovereign plan so as to work out His glory that will one day cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. That is, in essence, Habakkuk's complaint and God's response and it is so important for us to learn the truth of God's sovereignty even in the midst of pain because it becomes to us a great comfort. When we embrace the truth of God's sovereignty in our suffering, it becomes to us a great comfort, one that gives us hope. So let's look then at the complaint and the response. We'll order our thoughts under those two headings, Habakkuk's complaint and God's response, beginning with his complaint, 
He opens his mouth, and the first thing this prophet says, How long, O Lord, will I cry for help, and you will not hear me? Now, Habakkuk is bold, certainly. Perhaps a little bit of background would help us understand why he was so ready to accuse God in the way that he does. We don't have a date stamp on this book, but most likely we can understand that Habakkuk is speaking at a time after King Josiah, before the deportation to Babylon. So around about 2 Kings 23, Josiah has died. He brought about righteous reforms, upheld the law, but he's now dead. And any sense of upholding that level of righteousness that King Josiah had instilled in his people is now gone. It evaporated very quickly so that society has returned to a godless way of behaving, not desiring to honor the Lord in any sense, not desiring to uphold His law. King Jehoiakim is now on the throne And we read in the prophet Jeremiah that Jehoiakim had such disregard for the standards of the law that when a prophet confronted him, Jehoiakim had the prophet killed. This king of God's people had such little regard for the law and for God's standards that when he was confronted with it by a prophet, a messenger of God, King Jehoiakim saw fit to kill that messenger. That is an indication of the unrighteousness, the injustice which surrounded Habakkuk when he speaks. And so he cries out. How long must I cry to you for help and you won't hear me? For how long must I cry to you violence and you won't act to save? More than that, verse 3, look at the, the notion of causality. Why do you cause me to see iniquity? Why do you make me look at these things? And yet you look idly at them. You're not doing anything about this injustice. I'm surrounded by destruction and violence, strife and contention. The law which you spoke is paralyzed. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not bringing people into conformity with your will. The wicked, therefore, surround the righteous, and justice goes forth in a perverted manner. People who claim to uphold justice are not in any sense upholding it in the way that your law prescribes it. And so, all around me, says the prophet, there is wickedness and evil. And for the righteous... That translates to suffering, to misery. Now again, Habakkuk is being very bold. But we must not miss the theological truths that he speaks as we note just how confrontational he's ready to be with God. Consider just for a minute at least three theological assumptions that are inherent to Habakkuk's prayer. First of all, we note that Habakkuk assumes God is able. Habakkuk comes to the Lord with this prayer assuming God's power. The very fact that Habakkuk is willing to cry out to the Lord in prayer, the very fact that Habakkuk persists in prayer, demonstrates his theological conviction that God is powerful. He's able to stop this if he so chooses. Notice, secondly, Habakkuk assumes that God desires righteousness. 
He appeals to God's law. He cries out violence, iniquity, evil. Why won't you act? The implicit assumption is, I know you want for people to behave righteously. I know that you desire your people Israel to act in a manner that honors you. And so thirdly, from that, we may even say Habakkuk assumes that God is good. Now, why do I say that? As Habakkuk appeals to the law, he's making an appeal to a broader theological context, namely the one of the Mosaic Covenant. That's where the Torah was given to these people within the context of a loving covenant. That covenant comes from God's saving work as He drew His people out of Egypt. He set them free from the cause of bondage to slavery to Pharaoh. He brought them into a loving, caring relationship with Himself. And in that context gave them a law, not so as to be a burden unto them, but so that they would flourish. The law itself was an expression of God's love for His people whom He had redeemed. Notice even, as Habakkuk opens his mouth, he uses the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He's making an implicit appeal to that covenant context, and therefore the inbuilt assumption to Habakkuk's prayer is that God is loving. He cares for His people, and there we then find the articulation of the problem of evil. As it has been stated by countless people through all generations, the problem of evil, of suffering, of pain, is found right here in Habakkuk's first complaint, namely, God is able, God is good, and yet wickedness exists. That is the problem of evil as it has always been defined. God is powerful. He is loving, and yet we see suffering. How then can you reconcile those realities? The nature, the characteristics of an all-powerful, loving God with the presence and the persistent presence of evil. How can you reconcile these truths? And I trust that you know this problem personally. Everyone has experienced on some level to some degree evil in the world, suffering in their life, the realities of being in a sin-cursed world. And in those moments of great trial, we can call out to God and say, God, why won't you relieve this suffering? Why are you ordaining this for my life right now? Where is your love in this? We see it more broadly in the history of the church. Her normative experience throughout her 2,000 years of history across the world has been that of persecution. God, this is your treasured possession, the bride of Christ. We affirm that you are able, you are powerful, and that you're loving. Why do you allow such wickedness? And then similar to Habakkuk, we see it all around us in society. One injustice upon another... God is powerful, He is loving, why does He allow wickedness to persist? That is the problem of evil. Many have sought to reconcile that tension through many different ways, and as you can imagine, perhaps the easiest way to reconcile the tension is simply to deny either that God is able or that He is loving. That reconciles and gives an answer to the problem of evil right away. Either you say God is not able or He is not caring. 
And that is why all of this evil and suffering and pain persists in the world. But I trust you understand we must not go there in our thoughts. We must not allow the meditations of our hearts to stray half a step towards the notion of God not being sovereign, not being powerful, nor being loving. Rather, we must uphold both because it becomes the very means by which we are driven towards prayer in times of trial. Not only is it true that as we proclaim God to be good and we proclaim God to be powerful, we uphold His character and thereby honor Him, that is true, but personally holding on to those two characteristics of God drives us towards prayer when we experience trials. Consider what would be the case if we denied either of those attributes. If we were to say for one minute, God is not able, He's insufficient, He doesn't possess the power to fix this wrong, why would we ever seek to go to Him in prayer? Why would we ever make the kind of appeal that Habakkuk makes in times of trial? Or perhaps we were to deny His love for us. Perhaps we were to deny that He is not loving, caring, has an intimate involvement and care for our souls. Now we dare not go to Him in prayer. If we don't affirm His goodness, who knows what kind of response we'll get when we make these kind of petitions. Now we fear to come towards Him in prayer. It is only when you lay hold of these doctrines of His power and His love that they then form a wall that hems us in so that in times of trial you have nowhere else to run. It is when you lay hold of the truths of God's almighty power and His overwhelming love that you run towards Him in times of trial because you have nowhere else to go. You see, this is where Habakkuk can function as an example for us. Now, don't misunderstand me. He makes some missteps in this first complaint that God is about to correct. Habakkuk makes some errors in his opening petition that God will correct But if nothing else, we may follow his example simply in his readiness to make an appeal to God. He is not shy to come before God's throne of grace during times of trial. And that's exactly how God would have us respond. In fact, one of the most common responses that is given to the problem of suffering is that God uses it so as to draw His children near. God will often ordain suffering as a means by which to draw you closer to Him. C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences. He shouts to us through a megaphone in our suffering. Think even here about the historical context. The people are facing exile. God's response in just a few minutes we'll see is that He is working so as to raise up the Babylonians so as to take His people into exile. There is hardship and suffering on the way for them. Why? Why did God send His people into exile so as to refine them and effect in them genuine faith? He is using their suffering so as to bring them near. And so you see our responsibility is to respond in times of trial by drawing close to God, by running towards Him. We may not be able to understand or explain why God has ordained the specific trials that we encounter. 
We may never fully understand this side of glory, why God ordains these specific trials that we encounter. But if nothing else, we may know for absolute certain by virtue of Habakkuk's opening prayer that we are to respond to each and every expression of suffering, pain, evil, and injustice by making a beeline to communion with God. We must draw close to Him, run into His presence every time we are made aware of any expression of suffering, whether in our lives or within the church or within society. We should allow it to function as a mechanism to draw us close to Him, not to step back from Him, not to withdraw from our God. Now, that sounds a lot easier than perhaps it actually is. We often live our lives going about our business in our own strength, rejoicing in the Lord only really when times are good. It's very easy to be a Christian when times are good. And so we honor Him and we sing His praises and we have something of a prayer life and a devotional life when everything's going the way that we would have it go. And then when trials come... The impulse of our heart is not to draw closer, but to step back. Because now God is not giving me the thing that I want. He's not ordaining the circumstances that I would choose, so I no longer run towards Him. Our responsibility is to do the exact opposite, to draw all the closer to God as we experience trials. How? Very practically, you saturate your minds with the truths that God is powerful and that He is loving. When times are good, before there's any indication of a trial or hardship or suffering, when times are good, make it a discipline of yours to set your heart upon the truth of God's power, His strength, and His love. Train your heart to know the attributes of God. Train your heart to find a resting place in His power and His love so that when He ordains trials in His perfect wisdom for you, the impulse of your heart will not be to step back but to run towards Him because where else have you to go? You will come towards Him in prayer, and in that, He will be honored. Now, we have not yet answered Habakkuk's question, will God be idle? God responds to Habakkuk, and He opens up with a fourfold imperative. Verse 5, look, see, wonder, be astounded. God responds with a fourfold command. You see the emphatic nature of God's response. He wants for this man to sit up and listen because he is about to provide a corrective for his theology. Look, see, wonder, be astounded. This is my command to you, Habakkuk, and by inference to all who would read this book. It's interesting to note the imperative issued here in the original is given to the plural. He's not actually addressing Habakkuk alone, but to the whole congregation. All of you look and see and wonder and be astounded. There is a lesson that I have for you to learn, namely, verse 6, I am acting. End of verse 5, I am doing a work. More literally, I am working out a work. I am continuously at work right now in your days. And that there, the second half of verse 5, is the main theological answer that God gives. He will unpack it and give details in verses 6 through 11, but in verse 5, He has just issued His main theological response, I will not be idle. 
in response to Habakkuk's accusation in verse 3, why do you idly look at wrong? God says, close your mouth and understand I am at work. I am not a God that stands back and looks idly at evil and suffering and wrongdoing. But rather, I am intimately involved at work through them. Again, God does not author evil. He is not pleased with evil. But according to His wisdom and His sovereign care, He is at work through them so as to bring about His glory that will one day cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. And this is what God says to Habakkuk. I am at work. Now, he explains the specific manner in which he is at work. Namely, I'm not going to allow this justice to persist forever. I will respond to it with an army, a foreign army, the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians. They were the superpower on the world stage at the time. God says, I'm raising them up by my hand. They will be strong They're bitter, they're hasty, they're ruthless, and they're going to come, and they're going to seize land that is not their own. They had an enormous army. Their horsemen were dreaded, were feared. God describes the horses as leopards, as wolves, like eagles. And He says, this army is on its way to address the injustice that you complain about. Now, that response raises more questions, undoubtedly. Habakkuk will go on in his second complaint to say, but God, how can you use a greater evil to address this first evil? How can you be pleased to use a greater evil to address this first evil? There are questions that this response from God raises, undoubtedly, and God will get to those further on in the book. But for now, the principal teaching point that God would have Habakkuk learn, that He would want us to learn today, is that in addition to the reality of Him being able, in addition to the truth of Him being loving, He is sovereign. You see, Habakkuk's complaint had fallen short of affirming God's sovereignty, of his intimate involvement in everything that he sees around him. Habakkuk had become close to what theologians refer to as deism. This is a way of thinking about God, deism, that suggests God is able would attribute to him his creative work, but thereafter would explain all the evil we see in the world by virtue of God being hands-off. So the deist often uses the analogy of God being the clockmaker. At the beginning of time, he wound up the clock and then he set it down and now he's just allowing it to tick to run its own course. God is now hands off, and Habakkuk was dangerously close to adopting that worldview, and God's correction is to say, I am not hands off. I am not simply observing this, unwilling to act, but I am intimately involved in this. I am using this in ways that you cannot fully understand. God is a God who has always been intimately involved in His created order. From Genesis chapter 1 onwards, we see a God who works, a God who will not stand back and simply observe, a God who is not hands-off, but at every single chapter of the Bible affirms His willingness, His readiness to act, to be involved in His creation. And even in the midst of the wickedness of men, God is acting. God is acting. This is the truth that we must all learn because it gives us great hope. If our hearts tend towards 
an understanding of God that is hands-off, we lose any sense of hope. It's when we affirm His sovereignty in everything that we see around us that we find hope. I'm reminded of a story many years ago back home in the UK. A young mum was in the park with her child, and she was attacked a man had stabbed her and left her for dead with seemingly absolutely no explanation as to why he did it. She was found and the doctors were able to save her life. And in the interviews that followed, it transpired that she was a woman of faith. She asserted God's love for her, her love for him and his sovereign care of her. And I always remember a comment that she gave in one of the interviews. Why do you think this man did this to you? She said, I have no idea, but one thing I'm certain of is that God is at work. She affirmed the sovereignty of God in her suffering. And that was the bedrock of her hope. You see, it's the same truth that we find elsewhere in the Bible, not least in the gospel narrative. I was reflecting just this morning in the Lord's kindness, the last time I was here, we were studying together the road to Emmaus narrative, and you'll, you'll remember in that narrative, the apostles are struggling to affirm God's sovereignty in the face of the greatest injustice, namely the death of His righteous Son. And Jesus Himself shows up and corrects their theology and says, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? Perhaps you'll remember that term, it is necessary. It's found in every corner of the narrative of Luke and Acts. It's Luke's way of drawing attention to God's sovereign hand in our lives. The theological correction that Christ issues to those men on the road to Emmaus is that God was involved in the death of His Son. He was not hands-off. This was not the work of evil men, and that's the sum total of the theological explanation for what you just saw. Because if all you can say about the death of the Christ is that evil men put Him to death, and you can't affirm God's sovereignty in it, then the cross offers no hope for you. But it's when you can understand that on the one hand, wicked men put him to death, and on the other hand, God was reigning sovereignly over the death of his son, that now you have a sure and a steady hope. Which is why you get to Acts chapter 2, and Peter, having learned that theological truth, now boldly proclaims on the day of Pentecost, God delivered him up to be crucified. And that is the bedrock of the Christian hope. If you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith in Christ, I can understand that you would struggle to understand, to perceive the narrative concerning Jesus as anything other than a tragedy. If you've never come to terms with God's sovereignty, then there's no reason why you should look at the narrative concerning Jesus and see it as anything other than a tragedy, a righteous man put to death by wicked men. But it's when you embrace the truth of God's sovereign care that you understand He delivered His Son up to be crucified so as to make a payment for sin. All that would put their faith in Christ, His life and His death and His resurrection, will have their sins accounted for. His death has made a payment for sin. And now there is a hope that you can grasp onto. And you see how one complements the other when you affirm God's sovereignty in the life of His Son in the gospel narratives. Now you can affirm God's sovereignty in your own life, in your own suffering, in your own pain. Having beheld Christ with eyes of faith and trusted in the text that God delivered him up, now you can believe that God somehow is at work in your own suffering. 
again, it is not to say that you will always be able to explain why God has ordained the particular trials that He has for you. It is not our responsibility to get to the bottom of why God has ordained the particular trials, why God allows the particular expressions of evil that you see around you. That is not our responsibility, but you're able to make sense of it in so much as you understand every expression of suffering is presided over by a sovereign, loving, caring Father. When you walk this journey with Habakkuk, certain realities emerge in your life. The first is that you understand every expression of suffering becomes an opportunity for faith. Looking ahead in this short book, in chapter 2 and verse 4, God will instruct Habakkuk that the righteous live by faith. When you embrace this initial lesson of God's sovereign involvement in suffering, you understand every trial is an opportunity for you to draw close to God. It is an expression of faith that God desires for, from you, and you understand just how precious that faith is. Secondly, every trial, every expression of suffering is a reminder of the priority of God's glory in our lives. Again, looking ahead in this book, in chapter 2, verse 14, God will teach Habakkuk about the reality that one day this whole earth will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea, and that is His ultimate priority. Would not God allow some measure of suffering amongst His people if it would bring about that glory, a prioritization of God's glory in their lives? And so when you learn with Habakkuk the reality of God's sovereign care, you understand the priority of God's glory. And finally, as you learn with Habakkuk, this truth of God's sovereign involvement, He will not be idle. You take just the first step along the pathway of learning that skill of rejoicing in the midst of suffering. This is where the book ends. Habakkuk prays one of the richest prayers in all of Scripture, and he closes by saying, I will choose to rejoice in the Lord. My circumstances have not changed. My suffering has not been alleviated. In fact, I understand now it's about to get far worse. In all of that, I will rejoice in the Lord. God would have us learn exactly the same skill and the very first step towards learning that is to lay hold of God's love, His power, and His sovereignty. May that be our reality as God instructs our words through His heart. Let's pray now to close. Father, we give You thanks for this portion of Your Word that lays plain to us the problem that we all feel, that we experience, that we see, the problem of suffering, of injustice, of evil. In light of our knowledge of You, that You are powerful and You are loving, how then does such suffering exist? Help us to understand this morning Whatever are the reasons that you would ordain trials in our lives, whatever are the reasons that you would allow so much evil to flourish, one thing we may never say is that you are idle. One thing we may never 
say is that you are not at work. Rather, teach our hearts to boldly proclaim your sovereignty, your sovereign hand at work in the lives of your children, your wisdom being exercised in the midst of every struggle. May that be for us a bedrock of hope. As we trust in your work at the cross, you were not hands off, but you delivered your son to be crushed so as to make a payment for our sin. As we set our faith in your son, may we also understand that in our struggles, in our suffering, you are not hands off, but you are sovereign. And as we lay claim to that truth, may every expression of suffering be an opportunity for trust. May there be a reordering in our hearts so that we truly prioritize your glory over our comfort. And would you teach us that particular skill of rejoicing in you, irrespective of our circumstances. Father, we pray all of these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Please stand with me now for the benediction. Now may God, who is powerful and who is loving and who is sovereign, be honored in our lives through hard times and good. May he receive all the glory in Jesus' name.